Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. So I, as I was putting this episode together, um, I realized that once again I was running into another potentially short episode. So um, in order to stretch it out and maybe give you, I don't know, something hopefully entertaining, um, I'm going to give you kind of the story behind the story of this film before I tell you what it is. So Hitch, still working for Paramount, secures the rights to a French novel. And this novel had a really interesting twist in the middle and an even more interesting twist at the end. But Hitch's problem with the twist at the end was that it fell into that shock rather than surprise. We've talked about this. We've talked about shock is a twist that happens without the audience knowing that anything's going to happen. And suspense is created with a twist that the audience knows is coming, but the characters don't. So Hitch, trying to figure out how to create suspense out of this shock, realizes that what he's going to have to do is spill the whole bean, spill the whole can of worms, spill the beans to the audience not long after we've already had this big twist in the middle and just tell the audience exactly what's going on. And everyone is blown away by this decision. has no idea what he's talking about. Um, but, of course, in the end, Hitch is proven right as it created suspense in the audience and created possibly his best film ever or arguably one of his best films of all time. Now, Hitch ran into another problem in pre-production. He casted a young actress by the name of Vera Miles, who is going to show up in the film we'll discuss in our next class session. Um, he had one of his collaborators, costume designer Edith Head, done all of her costumes already. They'd shot tests with her, putting quite a bit of money into her being the star of Hitch's next picture. And then she gets pregnant. So now she's, now because she's pregnant, you know, and the film's going to take many months to produce, she's not, she's not going to be able to fulfill her role. So... Hitch has to go find her replacement, and he gets Kim Novak, who's a fairly big star at the time. If you've seen The Man with the Golden Arm, she's in that film, which came out, I want to say, three years before this one. And she meets with Hitch and comes with her set with a set of demands about how her hair has to be a certain color and that she wouldn't wear, sh- uh, you know, suits, and she wouldn't wear gray, and she wouldn't go blonde, and... And Hitch says, oh, yes, that's all fine, um, so long as it fits the story. And basically giving her uh, the old Henry Ford deal, you know, where, um, you know, Henry Ford was famous for saying that you could get a car in any color so long as it was black. Um, And she ended up doing exactly everything she didn't want to do. She went blonde and she wore a suit and it was gray and all those things. Um... Uh, Now, of course, the movie we're talking about is Vertigo. If you haven't seen it, it's the story of a detective whose fear of heights, that's where the name comes from. You know, he gets up high, he looks down, and he gets vertigo. Um, Acrophobia, they call it. Um, (laughs) And this detective is hired by an old college friend to follow his wife, um, as she seems to be psychologically convinced that she is a woman from the 1800s. This movie takes place, what would have been modern day, 1958-ish in San Francisco. Um... However, the story takes a very different turn when he begins to fall in love with this enigmatic woman. Now, Vertigo is widely considered one of Hitch's greatest films, maybe one of his most stylized films. 
one of the things that comes out of that stylization is this ability to put the entire story almost actually yeah the entire story into a single character's point of view and it does switch POVs at one point and from that moment on it kind of alternates a little bit but almost the entire story is from Jimmy Stewart's perspective and one of the ways that he was able to do that was actually through an extension of what he'd already done with a film that Jimmy Stewart was in called Rear Window. For those of you who don't remember, we talked about Rear Window and its use of montage. It's the the cutting from Jimmy what Jimmy Stewart's Jimmy Stewart's face to what he sees, cutting back, and building a character through that, and being able to follow characters' thought processes. Well, it's the same thing here in Vertigo because he's a PI basically. Well, he's not even a PI. He's just a a detective who's on. Uh, medical leave and there's this long extended sequence where we're just following him following Kim Novak and there's a ton of scenes where we're just watching him you know put things together in his mind and again same technique cut from Jimmy Stewart to what he sees and cut back but Hitch went a little bit further than a little bit further than that because it's not just about you know close up point of view close up it's more than point of view and this is why he calls it subjective treatment it's the ability to make the camera a subjective tool instead of an objective one it's not standing off looking at something happening it is acting as the character. It's moving as the character moves. It's, it is interpreting information as the character sees it. It's the ability to set up a camera and frame a shot so that we can see what the character is focusing on or expressing how the character feels in that moment. For instance, there is the infamous vertigo shot that is repeated, I want to say, three times in this film, four times in this film, where we see Jimmy Stewart look down, and then we see what he sees. We see this sense of vertigo, of the room going, or the the ground going far away from where he is, you know. Um, And the interesting thing about that is that that is something Hitch had tried to do for literally two decades. He had been at a party, gotten a little drunk, and he had this sense of the room going away from him, even though he stayed where he was, this perspective of the room, you know, just falling away into the distance through the horizon. And he had wanted to replicate that in Rebecca. There's this scene in Rebecca where at the trial of her husband, she faints, and he had wanted to do it there, but nobody could figure out how to do it. And they had... They'd even tried printing a photograph on a piece of rubber of her POV and stretching it to see if that would do it, and it didn't work. And you know, every movie since then, he's trying to figure out, how do I get this shot done? And he had to have it in vertigo because he had to be able to communicate to the audience that sense of vertigo. And finally, someone, I don't even know who, comes up with this idea of, well, what if we put the camera on a dolly and we put a zoom lens on the camera, and as the dolly pushes forward, we zoom out. Now, for those of you who don't understand optics and perspective, I think I've talked about this, but let me go over it really briefly again. A wide-angle lens 
exaggerates distance and a telephoto lens compresses it. So if you're on a zoom lens and you zoom out, zooming to a wider angle lens, what you're going to do is exaggerate the distance between two objects. What that's also going to do though is it is going to give you more foreground. So if you push in perfectly synced with the dolly, or excuse me, perfectly synced with the zoom, you can keep the foreground at the same distance, but at the same time exaggerate the depth. And that's exactly how the vertigo shot was done, and it's been replicated countless times, um, most famously in Jaws, uh, where uh, Chief Brody is on the beach, and he's looking out in the water, and he sees all these, all these false alarms, you know, of the shark, and then all of a sudden the shark actually eats a kid, and there's this big dramatic push in and zoom out on Chief Brody, and it does a great job of isolating him in that frame. And that's the trick to this zoom dolly. Is something that I really, <laughs> really want to caution young filmmakers on. It is a powerful move, but because it is so powerful, it really needs to be preserved for moments where it does the most good. And Hitch, Hitch pioneered it with probably the perfect use of it, of, um, of displaying that sense of vertigo. And I think, um. Steven Spielberg, you know, adapted it to create a perfectly great dramatic moment, but it has been replicated so much. To me anyway, it it, it feels insincere. It's not it's it's more of a replication of, oh look look, I can do it too, instead of a instead of a really understanding the necessity of that tool and how it can really be used in a powerful way. I'd also like to note that we've kind of been building up to that shot. Uh, very slowly. I've only mentioned it a couple of times, but stairs show up in Hitchcock's movies a lot. And there's two movies with a shot looking down the barrel of the stairs from the top like that. There's one in The Lodger and there's one in Foreign Correspondent. And here we go again in Vertigo. And I noticed it and it was brought up in one of his interviews. And uh, the funny thing is that his response was very simple. He said, well, stairs are very photogenic. And that was it. That was why, that's why that's a recurring thing. It's just photogenic. just looks nice. So I think it's kind of funny. Getting back to that subjective treatment, there's another interesting technique that Hitch used. During these scenes where Jimmy Stewart's following Kim Novak, character's name is Madeline, following Madeline, um, all throughout San Francisco. She ends up at a mission, and he's starting to put some pieces together. But there's this incredible air of mystery about her. So while she's at this mission, they use the fog filter, really heavy diffusion filter that would lend this air of almost dreamlike, strange, mysterious, surreal quality to all of Jimmy Stewart's POV shots. That's subjective treatment. It's not just close-up, POV, close-up. It's close-up, what is that character seeing? How do you use the camera to communicate that character's, that character's subjective perspective? That's subjective treatment. You know, and then there's, there's these dream sequences and there's, this, there's all these crazy, very surreal things going on because we're all in this character's head. And perhaps the most fascinating part of that subjectivity actually 
is not within the plot itself. It's during the opening titles. And if you've seen the opening titles, you know what I'm talking about. And I actually want to take a minute to pay some homage to a man that I think has gotten very little credit over the last half century. Um, and that is the man who created these opening titles. A man by the name of Saul Bass. Uh, he was a graphic designer who literally revolutionized main title design. If you look at films leading up to Vertigo, or really leading up to The Man with the Golden Arm, opening titles were of necessity, not of art. They were very matter-of-fact. They presented, these are the people in the movie, these are the people who made the movie, and now here's your movie. But Saul Bass recognized that the beginning of the movie there with the opening titles was a way to set the tone immediately and to do something graphically and interestingly that could actually draw the audience into the movie before the story has actually begun. And the first movie that he did that with was Otto Preminger's The Man with the Golden Gun, ironically also starring Kim Novak, as I mentioned before. But then he does Vertigo. And if you've seen Vertigo, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very surreal, um, dream-like opening sequence that sets the tone for this bizarre mystery and suspense that you're about to get into. And Saul Bass went on to have a very good collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock as he did the next two films uh, that we will discuss in our next two class sessions. And he went on to have a great career working with Martin Scorsese and uh, other great filmmakers and doing a ton of great, great title design work that does a phenomenal job of setting the tone early for the film and becoming, in essence, another storyteller whose work becomes crucial to the films that he worked on. Um, yeah, once again, I'm sorry that is so short. I just, we're, we're getting to a point where I don't have a lot that I haven't already told you about Hitchcock. And I'm trying to save things. And, and as his career went on, he seemed to have, he, he himself published less essays about his own films. And the interviews began taking more of a tone of, a, oh, let's look at this man's whole career. What else has he done? Look at these great movies that he's did. Uh, so, so we're getting to a point where, um, where I realize that I've kind of, kind of used up a lot of my good material early and hopefully this next season I do better at kind of saving some of that stuff but um, there are some really good films still to talk about and I think there's going to be still some really good things ahead there may be some review but there's also going to be some good things that I've kind of saved uh, that I think are going to be really helpful um, and there's really not much more to go um, I've got to see that one we have six films left, six six more class sessions. Um, and I think the final is going to be really fun because I want to kind of do it as kind of a retrospective, look at the whole breadth of work that we've just looked at, look at, you know, everything, and, you know, really kind of try to encapsulate um, as much of Alfred Hitchcock as possible in, uh, in hopefully just one episode. Um, but thanks again for listening to, to Hitchcock University. Uh, if you need to re or if you want to reach out to me, uh, I am – uh, available at HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Um, also, Facebook, Hitchcock University, and Twitter, Hitch underscore U. Um, please leave some comments or feedback or something. I would really love to hear, uh, especially as we get closer to the end of the show, how you guys 
uh, feel about this, you know, what what's working, what's not working. Um, and you can leave uh, a rating or a review at at iTunes uh, podcast, at uh, SoundCloud, uh, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is you listen to the show. Uh, thanks again for listening, and thanks for attending Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. <laughs>